Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. David Shen was employee 17 at Yahoo, where he eventually had a hand in not only the birth of advertising as the primary business model for the web, but eventually the development of digital ads in their more modern interactive form. As you'll hear in this episode, David has a new book out, which there's a link to in the show notes, and I highly recommend you buy it, that recounts the early days of Yahoo, surviving the dot-com bust, and taking advertising beyond the simple banner ad into the interactive medium that we know today. Please enjoy this conversation with David Shen. David Shen, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. This is exciting for me to be on my first podcast ever. <laughs> well, good. And it's uh, we're going to talk about it, um, especially towards the end, but I believe this is your first book ever that you've written? That's right. That's right. Uh, also a very interesting process, which I'm not sure we have time to get into, but I encourage everyone to do it if, uh, if they have the time. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, blurb it right now. It's it's called "Takeover: The Inside Story of the Yahoo Ad Revolution," um, and we'll talk more. We'll talk more maybe about that process at the end. But let's let's get started with your story. Um, so you you were a, a Stanford uh, computer science grad, um, but I believe your your first job um, was at Apple doing essentially product design. That's right. Uh, I got out of Stanford and um, uh, I was in the product design the program. Uh, I got halfway through, uh, didn't finish it. Uh, ended up just working at Apple because I loved it so much. But yeah, I spent uh, about three and a half years there uh, doing um, product design back uh, before Steve Jobs got there. It's kind of before uh, all the excitement of, that we're seeing now at Apple. It was still a great time, a uh, great company to work for. Uh, worked on Apple adjustable keyboard, the Quick Take 100, a lot of really interesting products, not your typical. Um, uh, computer or laptop. Yeah, it was a great time. Yeah, it's the early '90s, so maybe uh, you're you're there for some of the Newton era, maybe. Yeah, the Newton was there. Yeah, uh, I think the second Newton had come out when I was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bigger, bigger green one. <laughs> um, and then after that, you spent a couple years at at Frog Design, which obviously has has worked with Apple in the past. But you're still doing product uh, design there as well. That's right. Uh, so I switched roles from a, uh, I guess, a client to uh, doing product design as a consultant, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting to do uh, product design from that point of view. Um, but yeah, there I spent about a year and a half uh, working with Hartman Esselier and the team. Uh, it was a great, great experience. Um, did a another adjustable keyboard, did um, uh, a toaster for Sunbeam, which is a fantastic product. Uh, I have a, a collection of toasters, the 80 toasters now, which I'm not sure what to do with, but I loved, uh, I loved the, <laughs> the design aspects of, of it when you, when you take a look at that. And, uh, yeah. And then, um, then, uh, did a little bit of interactive stuff before I left, uh, in 1995 for Yahoo. Well, so let's, let's get into that. How, um, are, are you recruited by Yahoo or is it sort of like the, the, the the web is starting to take off and you want to you want to get on board or how how do you how do you join yahoo so you know once you've been in the valley for a while you always hear stories of people who make it big and this guy has this success story that you know was this part of this startup and you know i'd been here for a while but i hadn't really um had that opportunity 
And so when my uh, friends, Jerry Yang and David Philo, who uh, I'd met when I was still at Stanford, uh, came calling with their startup that they were working on, uh, I jumped at the chance to join it. And uh, it actually took a while before I joined. Um, they actually called me up because they needed a logo. And they started to explain to me they were getting funded by Venture Fund, which I had no idea what that was at the time. <laughs> and, um, and things were moving along at this company. And, and at that time, I think Al Gore had started talking about uh, Information Superhighway. I think it was him that he started doing that. And um, um, yeah, it just seemed like an exciting thing to jump on. And uh, I, I did their original logo for them. Uh, got them to, I think, Internet World 1995, uh, early that year. Uh, then kept bugging them, bugging them uh, until I, they finally took me on as their first designer in September of 1995. Well, I, I wasn't aware that you, you knew them previously. So you, you met them at Stanford. Were you, were you close with them or was it just, you know, people that you knew from classes and things like that? Yeah, I met Jerry Yang when he was a sophomore there. Uh, so um, and I was a grad student at Stanford at the time. So um, uh, and then, you know, we did a lot of, you know, hung out a lot at the college uh, and then Dave Philo came in later uh, into the grad program that Jerry was in, and um, uh, and that's when I met him. Um, so yeah, it's, I knew them for many years actually before uh, Yahoo started. Were you um, were you aware of the list when they start making it? Like the, the story that I've always heard is that they're Jerry and David are, are working on their thesis or whatever, and they're they're kind of bored with it. And on the side, they start making this list. Were you uh, privy to any of that stuff, or did you were you using their their list early on? Um, actually, I was not. I had no idea what the internet was. Mm. <laughs> I just heard about it in the news and, uh, and um, got introduced to it through, uh, through Jerry and Dave. And um, you know, I didn't really have a good concept of this information, uh, web pages, uh, accessing things to a URL, which took me a while to figure out what is this HTTP colon slash slash, which we use still today, <laughs> and uh, um, had no idea what that was. And, uh, you know, back then, we were still accessing the internet through modems, and it was very slow, it was very hard to do. Um, it's not like today where you can just pull out your cell phone and boom, you know, you're on the internet. Um, but, uh, yeah, then uh, and it, there wasn't that much stuff on the internet. So a lot of it was about research papers, I think, and um, people putting their research online and making that accessible. Uh, it certainly wasn't as visual and as exciting as it is now, streaming videos and movies and things like that. Um, but it was very primitive. It was like the Wild West. It was, uh, it was a great time. So when, when you're hired, uh, I think you're like employee 17 or something like that. Um, you said that they, they'd already uh, raised a, a venture around at that point? That's right. Um, if I recall correctly, hopefully my memory is, is good still <laughs> many, many decades later. Uh, they took about a million dollars from Sequoia Ventures uh, as Sequoia Capital. And um, yeah, they were off and running and they could hire people and they were, they were looking for uh, to build out the team. OK, so uh, you're, you're joining this team that they're building out. Um, what is it that you think uh, your job is going to be? What does your job turn out to be? What just in general, what is the company like at that stage when you join? Well, they were in a, in a small warehouse space. They were sitting with uh, another, another internet provider um, who was very funny because uh, these, I think it was two or three guys just sitting in the back and they had this huge server room and, uh, and had fiber optics coming in from Japan. I think it, it was the only fiber optics coming in, uh, fiber optic line coming in from Japan. <laughs> uh, and I think 
There was some um, Netscape server sitting there. There was Playboy.com server sitting there. And the funny thing I recall of that is when you look at the servers, right, the computers are blinking lights. And you see Playboy.com, which the light was, wasn't blinking. It was like solidly <laughs> on the whole time. And then you have Netscape, which is blinking furiously, and they had tons of computers there. But then you have Yahoo, which is, was doing what, how much, however much traffic, probably comparable traffic or even more, and yet it was barely blinking at all. And that, you know, that's a testament to the, the genius of the technology that David and Jerry had built, that it could do that um, at such efficiency um, at that time, which was great. But anyway, we were sitting in that, um, that, uh, that warehouse space. I could swear there was less than 10 people when I got there, but still I have an employee number 17. I think a few people came and gone mm-hmm. before, uh, before I got there. But um, yeah, it was uh, very dark back there. Uh, I always used to joke like there was no lights that when I didn't want to walk, walk out the door that someday, you know, they would find me dead, you know, in the parking lot in the morning because like, it was so pitch dark. You could not even see <laughs> your hand in front of you. Um, but um, yeah, we were all stuffed in there, um, worked 24 seven people would sleep under their desks. Uh, you know, the, the, the legend of sleeping under their desks, you know, maybe started <laughs> it's in some part, you know, there, but um, yeah, a lot happened in that little room uh, when I got there. And what what is the what is the role that you're you're brought in to fill? Oh, I was their first designer that they hired. Mm-hmm. Um, they had tried doing some uh, outside consultants, and it it just didn't work out. And um, so they finally brought me on and, and found the reason to do it. And uh, so I uh, helped them with a, a revision of the logo. I built out some very early um, marketing materials. Um, but then uh, it, it kind of shifted a little bit because uh, Donald Lobo, um, who is uh, one of their enge- early engineers, uh, was doing a lot of ad scheduling. And this is talked about in the book where he basically, uh, I think he didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so he handed it off to me, which is a very important job, by the way, um, you know, taking care of the revenue coming in the company uh, and making sure that that got uh, taken care of and loaded uh, uh, into the system correctly. Um, so I actually was, uh, doing a lot of ad scheduling uh, early on as well. Well, let's get into that because, um, to a larger degree, your book is about, um, you know, the evolution of, of digital advertising and, and the role that Yahoo played in that. Um, so they had they had turned on advertising um, for the first time prior to you joining. Um, no, the first trials were actually uh, after I got there. Okay. Well, so and and very and, very late. And and Tim Brady has sort of told this story before, but you can go ahead and, and tell it again and, and add to it if you have anything. But, um, you know, the, the famous story is is that Donald Lobo, who you talk about, um, presses the button, the ads go live, and he says, oh, we fucking sold out. So, um, uh-huh, tell, right. tell me a little bit about that, because this is maybe hard to understand, but, um, you know, it was not entirely clear that, that advertising would work on the Internet, that users would accept it. Um, was it always your sense that from day one, Yahoo was going to go with ads? That was kind of basically the, 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 the only business plan that made sense? Well, I think the advertising plan uh, or um, thought of using advertising to monetize came from Tim Brady's uh, business plan, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which he wrote uh, for Yahoo. Um, he kind of talked about it in there. And... Um, trying to monetize it in terms of eyeballs, right? Drawing the similarity between 
um, people reading stuff on the internet versus reading stuff in a magazine or, or watching or consuming content on, on TV. Um, it was the hope that um, people would uh, take that experience and just translate it over to the internet and, uh, and not hopefully be too uh, um, uh, annoyed at, at the fact that ads are now showing up somewhere uh, on a page uh, that, um, that they saw in previous media or, or the media that they were used to seeing. Um, I think that there was some uh, thinking uh, amongst a lot of people on the internet about, well, couldn't we just make the internet a place where there were no ads and that everything was accessible for free? And you see even that in strategies today as people develop um, their startups and, and media companies, that kind of thing is. And I think also users have gotten conditioned to um, getting things for free at a variety of levels, not just consuming content, but um, services and all that kind of thing. You can talk about freemium and then as a strategy for strat uh, for startups, uh, you know, giving something for free away and then trying to charge them later for it for, or try to monetize it later. But um, so there, there was that kind of resistance to this interruption that you would experience in, in um, pre-internet uh, media. And uh, I think that's the, the um, what I think Lobo and a lot of people experience is now that we've got these, this content coming down super fast to you, delivered to you. Why do I have to get interrupted? And, it, and that interruption in the, in the beginning uh, was just simply when I scrolled the page, I was trying to read down a piece of text and all of a sudden there was a graphic there that interrupted the, the break of the page, right, of the content of the scrolling text. And, um, and maybe there was a hope that, that Yahoo could just do this and uh, survive uh, by not making money and just delivering content and services uh, uh, in a very pure way without uh, being interrupted by, inter uh, by ads, by advertising. Do, do you remember, was there any sort of um, backlash or, or pushback from the users when the ads did go up? Um, I don't recall actually any pushback. There mm -hmm. was definitely, um, uh, I think if you set up any kind of feedback system or, or set up emails, that kind of thing, you always get people who complain. Um, and that's one of the, the challenges of setting up a feedback system is that oftentimes the people who love you or don't care will not say anything because they just think everything's great and they don't, don't really want, uh, they don't need to bother you, right? They don't have to say it. But when people are mad at you, then they will find that link and click on it and, and submit something to you saying that, oh, this sucks, right? And I, I hate this. So, um, you know, I think as advertising launched, people did, um, um, there were people who, did, who didn't like it and even the small graphic that we used back then. But then um, I think that, uh, the, the proof is in that the traffic didn't drop. Right? If you do something and then the traffic to your website drops, then that's kind of users voting with their clicks, right? That they just don't want to visit you. And for some reason, and if it can be correlated or causated to the appearance of ads, then, well, you got to do something different, right? <laughs> so, um, but traffic didn't stop and it kept going up and, uh, and things seemed to be okay. So thereby launched the first internet ads on, if I remember correctly, it was Jan 1st, uh, uh, 1996, uh, when we pushed that button mm -hmm. uh, to, to watch the ads go live for the first time. Well, and uh, other uh, early banner ad pioneers, like the people from Hotmail that I've spoken to, they say that early on, the, the click-through rates are, are what we would think of as astronomical today. I think even at one point in your book, you mentioned that like some ads getting like a 22% click-through rate. 
And other people have told me that that's because they were so new and everybody's the, the web is so new. Everyone's always willing to click on on anything that's interesting before they get inured to the idea of ads. Um, do you remember that as well? Like early on, the, the, the ads got high, high click through rates. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think uh, people are always curious and wondering, what is that graphic? Where does it lead to? Um, Certainly there, there was optimizations on, on that, whether there was blue underlying text near that graphic or not, or the graphic was outlined with the blue uh, outline or not. Um, but yeah, people, people just wanted to know what was out there, right? They were surfing the net. They were just curious and they were browsing around. They, uh, they had purpose, you know, but I think they were also curious too, right? They wanted to, to know what else was out there. Um, so yeah, I think people clicked on ads a lot more back then and now we're, maybe we're a jaded community. We, we, we don't click on ads as much as anymore. We have other things we need to worry about. Um, we have day-to-day tasks that we need to get done. Um, maybe we have less free time. I don't know, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's different. It's a completely different world back then, uh, than it is now in terms of advertising. Well, let's let's bring you back in the story here. So you you mentioned that you you sort of take the ad scheduling load off of Donald Lobo's shoulders. I got the sense from you know you don't have a a background in advertising, but I got the sense that almost kind of like right away you found this whole advertising thing as sort of like an interesting problem to solve. Do you think that's like uh, why do you think that you 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 sort of embraced becoming the one of the ad guys at Yahoo. Uh, did you mean early on or later? Yeah, early on. Like, so the, okay. I believe that you you take over the ad scheduling from Donald Lobo, and then you work starting to set up some of the first ad servers. Is that right? Uh, no, just the scheduling part of it. Okay. And um, the the um, <laughs> I have to admit. Back then, uh, I, I knew very little about advertising except mm-hmm. as, a, uh, as a consumer experiencing it. Um, and then you get into the mechanics of, of scheduling, and it was, it was tough. It took a lot of time, and it took me away from doing what I was hired to do, which was design work. And, um, and you had to be extremely accurate, especially back then, because we're talking about pushing CSV files and, and Excel files uh, all Checked by hand. Um, well, let's underline. Uh, let's underline that because you you yeah. say that in your book. You, you guys are literally running the scheduling off of spreadsheets. It's it's like hard coded and like you, you're literally doing it by hand. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's a very scary thing because we're talking about money, right? Real money from people who are paying you, and they have expectations. And if you don't deliver, then uh, they get angry <laughs> and they demand more, and you don't want to uh, anger, your, your only source of revenue, uh, especially early on. So you have to be extremely accurate, uh, doubly accurate, especially when you're doing this stuff by hand. Um, and that kind of led to, uh, automation and all that kind of stuff. But before that happened, like, we would make a lot of mistakes. Um, and, and a lot, there were a lot of inaccuracies. And, and if you didn't have that attention, um, you, you could, you could have, you could cause a lot of problems, um, in the revenue generation of the company. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it was very tough. And, and so uh, to be honest, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, there was another guy that got hired and I handed it off to him mm-hmm. as soon as possible. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, subsequently uh, a lot more people were hired because it, it would just turn out to be a huge job. 
Um, but yeah, it was, it was very tough and it wasn't what I was very interested in. I just wanted to do more design for the company. Well, but you, you obviously you don't have the experience in, in advertising, but you do have the experience in, in user experience. <laughs> is that sort of your into to getting interested in, in doing advertising is, is that sort of understanding that you have of, you know, you don't want to piss the users off. You want to provide ads that are actually enjoyable. Is that, is that sort of your end to, to advertising? Yeah. So I tend to take things in life as a challenge instead of a, Oh my God, I got to do this thing. But so advertising to me was one of those challenges, meaning that these ads have to be on these pages. And so if they're going to be on these pages, how can I give, the user the best experience possible, despite the fact that these uh, ads are sitting on these pages. And we know that some uh, population of them hate them uh, outright. And we know that uh, we cannot control necessarily what the advertiser creates. So they may create something that inadvertently um, annoys somebody. Uh, and there's, of course, there's a population of uh, ad creators out there who actually create something that is uh, liked, right, that by the, by the users who view them. So you know, you take all those kind of constraints uh, and then this, the amount of area that an ad takes up. Uh, and then and later on, you know, we talked about high technology. We talked about high technology ads where things are flying across the page or on top of content and that kind of thing. Uh, and then we talk about sound and other types of um, really uh, potentially uh, <laughs> aggressive media. And so, um, you know, how do we take all that and put it all on one, one rectangle sitting here in this browser window uh, and, and hopefully create an experience for the user that's still positive. Um, and that, that I took on as a challenge. And it, it's very much a user experience problem, more so than, than I thought it would be. But uh, it totally made sense once I got into it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and in, in the big picture, you know, getting into some of the things that, that Yahoo helped pioneer in, in this regard, um, you know, like you said, moving into things like analytics, moving into things like, you know, not just me measuring page views, um, so like in like 98, 99, you know, at the, at the height of the, the dot-com era, um, how big a deal were, were things like personalizing and registration and, and things like the, my Yahoo thing, where once I sign on and you know, you know, my zip code, my name, my, you know, my age, that sort of stuff, that's, is that when it sort of becomes, um, more sophisticated than just porting over, you know, ads from a, from a print model. Yeah, we, we did a lot of that stuff um, before other people could do it. And it, a lot of it's because we had so many users on our platform and uh, we knew a lot about them. Uh, and especially when they created a Yahoo ID, uh, which was your kind of universal login for, for Yahoo. You can log into Yahoo Mail with it. You can log into my Yahoo with it. Um, but it also... Um, we associated a bunch of um, attributes to it uh, and we took that data and used it anonymously. So it wasn't like we knew uh, this person was Dave Shen and he went to search on this thing and did that thing. But, um, but as an aggregate, we knew what people did and we threw the, and that information was kept in a cookie, um, which uh, the browser would re retain. Uh, on, and we had two types of cookies. We had one that was a logged in cookie. So when you were logged in, say as Dave Shen, then uh, we knew it was you. And every time you came to a Yahoo page, you'd see your name sitting on the top. And then um, there was an anonymous cookie so that when you logged out, we still sort of knew 
what you were like and what you did, but we didn't know if you had logged in or it could have been somebody else uh, using the computer. Um, so, you know, all that piece of data, we ended up um, creating a system by which you could target ads to. Uh, and we created a ton of uh, these tar targeting buckets, um, people who are interested in news, people who are interested in sports, people who would visit, um, who would search on certain like things like autos, uh, uh, showing interest for buying an auto. Um, yeah, a ton of things that our data scientists um, had come up with. Um, so yeah, a lot of information collected and, and a lot of it being used for advertising, um, but mostly in an anonymous way. What about um, the advertisers themselves? And, and, and we're still in the, you know, the late 90s era, so like 98, 99. Um, the, the Proctors and Gambles of the world uh, how how much educating do you have to do? How much convincing do you have to do to get you know traditional advertisers to advertise online? Are they are they just sort of dipping their toes in the water, or are they willing to to go with you and experiment with you at that point? There was very little participation from the traditional brands. Uh, some of them were doing um, uh, experiments, uh, so they they were running these here and there. Uh, a lot of the agencies they used still had the mindset of traditional advertising. So they would often say, you know, we want to interrupt the user. Well, that's what happens in magazines, right? So one from one page to another, I have to get past an ad, sometimes mm -hmm. a full page ad to do that or, or TV, right? The whole show stops and an ad runs and then you keep going. And they wanted those kind of things on the internet too. Um, they also are very design you know, focused. So they want to have a big canvas on which to showcase a very beautiful ad so that they can attract your attention and uh, create some kind of response, right? An emotion or, or attraction to the product or whatever you, you, they were trying to say. And so then they come to the, uh, to the web, they look at what's available, this 468 by 60 rectangle. It's so small on the screen, they, they feel constrained. Right? They don't want that. They can't seem to, to process that they can do good work in that little space. And, uh, and they'd often come to um, Yahoo asking for more space, more interruption. Um, and during that time, we, uh, we were just not in a place to, to accept that. Um, we are all about uh, user experience. We cared a lot about it. And um, a lot of the interruptedness and the, the size of the ads at that time, um, we just felt like, uh, we didn't need to change. We should, we, the money was still coming in and um, um, we didn't really feel uh, motivated at that time to do anything about it. Now, uh, you know, I talked a lot about this uh, in the book, a little bit about this in the book where, you know, I feel like when all those internet startups that came up during that time from 1995 to the crash around 2000, a lot of people got funded. A lot of venture uh, funds, would put so much money into these startups and, and most of them were kind of silly ideas or very speculative ideas. And, um, uh, but they had a lot of money, more money than any startup can raise right now. <laughs> and uh, so the first thing they do is they start spending on advertising. So they would come to the Yahoo's of the world, InfoSeek, Lycos, other, other uh, internet portals that, that were out there um, and spend a ton on advertising uh, for, for uh, trying to get people to the services. And, um, um, and I think in large part, that's where, uh, the bulk of our revenue came from during that time was from these venture funded startups that, um, 
a lot of which, you know, who whom collapsed uh, through the dot-com bust uh, years. Right. Well, uh, but during yeah, that, uh, but during that time, all the traditional media, of which there was even more potential advertising dollars that could be deployed on the internet, were really sitting on the sidelines um, for a lot of their, their spend. They were still um, very used to doing their ad buys on TV, on radio, billboards, magazines, you know, the very, very traditional media, um, and had not jumped on in a large way yet uh, onto the internet. I want to step out of the, the advertising evolution story for just a second. Um, talking about the bubble, I mean, um, tell us about experiencing the bubble at Yahoo. I mean, you know, at, at some point, Yahoo has a market cap over like $100 billion and things like that. Um, and you know, you, you, you join this company when, when there's less than 20 people at, at the height of it. Uh, what was that like? Was it just, uh, was it crazy? Were you, were you feeling like you were on borrowed time or was it like funny money? What, what, what was the height of the bubble like? Yeah, boy, I, I learned a lot of life lessons through that time. Um, I don't think anyone's been through a big, uh, you don't meet much people, many people, at least the young people today that, um, have been through a big you know, high climb and then a, and a crash period. But, you know, during that time, I remember saying to people, it's like, oh, we're just going to keep making money. Like, how can we not make money? <laughs> and and there's no, there didn't even see a downside. And not even applied to your personal, you know, holdings, right? Your wealth and what was in your own bank account. And it's like, oh, the money just keep rolling in. Oh, I just, it just kept going up and up. How could it ever go down? It doesn't make any sense that it would go down. Right? It's like, you don't even believe that it can go down. Um, and so, you know, I remember it would be a huge swing. I'd never seen such volatility. Well, I guess you could say it's pretty volatile now, but uh, in the market where um, earnings would be announced and all of a sudden the stock would jump, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 100 points. And then within two, three days, it would fly downward mm-hmm. <laughs> again, um, losing a lot of that value. Um, and then uh, it was also, um, I, I remember experiencing frustration uh, as an insider where I could not um, sell shares um, until you know certain days after that earnings announcement happened, and so um, while other people who weren't insiders um, could sell at will, and so they would sell into these huge peaks, and uh, and we would you know be very frustrated because then we'd see the peak drop, start dropping, dropping, dropping <laughs> until the point at which we could uh, exit out of some shares. Um, so it's it's very like up and down, up and down, up and down. But then as we hit um, 2000, then things started to seem to crack, right? Things started, just started edging downward, edging downward, edging downward. And all of a sudden, boom, right? It hits rock bottom at, at the, um, somewhere, I think it was at, in uh, fall, winter of, of 2000, where I remember just looking at that day's close, it was like $9 per share. Although uh, I think I looked it up as like eight or something uh, in, in the official records. But, um, but yeah, that was, that was a very scary time because at that point um, all that value that you thought you had on paper was vaporized and, uh, and you could see all the companies around you closing down um, companies that you dealt with and, and knew that were out there. Um, and, uh, and there was talk about Microsoft buying us too. So nobody wanted to work for Microsoft at that time. Mm. <laughs> um, that was probably the first time that it might've happened or maybe the first time, but um, um, yeah, it was, very emotional. But, you know, the funny thing through that whole time was I don't think Yahoo ever or Yahoo personnel ever lost their their enthusiasm 
their loyalty, um, their their um, commitment to the mission. Right? It's like we want to bring content to the world in the fastest way possible. Um, yeah, we we internally like everybody was still gung ho and psyched to keep working on this thing. Um, so, in, so in, internally, you guys never yeah. really seriously feared that that you would also be a, a dot com flameout. No, we just wanted to keep working on it. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that was kind of a, the culture that was built at Yahoo where people didn't want to leave still, and, and they still loved the place. Um, we were like one big family, and, uh, and we were still the, the, one of the biggest uh, internet uh, companies out there uh, and definitely Survivor. And uh, we still had revenue coming in, just way less than, than what we had just a few months back. Um, <clears throat> But um, everybody was still excited about being there and uh, and continuing uh, on the mission and building the mission. One more question on this, and, and then we'll get back to you. But um, it occurs to me, would you guys, because you, as you say, the majority of your advertisers were other dot-coms, did you guys kind of maybe have an inkling that the bust was coming because, you know, suddenly dot-coms aren't buying ads anymore? Like, because you had that unique perspective on the rest of the market, did 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 you sort of get a little warning of when the, the bubble was bursting? Um, not me personally. Um, only that you could see the stock market, you know, dropping in things. But, um, but I didn't really understand that, that kind of strategy from a financial perspective back then. Um, so not, not me personally. Um, mm-hmm. There may have been some people who kind of looked at it or had more information than me. I was kind of saying, hmm, you know, we're, we should start getting worried now, but um, not not my, from my perspective. Um, yeah, there. Like I said, I learned a lot through this period <laughs> about how financial markets work and how companies look at and how you know boom and bust times you know happen, um, cycles, right? Financial cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just had no no. Well, I had no idea, but I think some people did. Um, so one of the one of the great things about your book, I think, is is um, the innovation that that you're a part of seems to really happen after the bubble burst, and it almost feels to me like it's born out of necessity. Like, because you said just before the the money was easy, and it seemed like you know how how could it ever stop flowing in? So when the bubble burst, all of a sudden Yahoo's going to have to get creative in order to keep that money rolling in. Um, so let's start with like the story of I think it's like March of 2001. Um, Tim Brady uh, recruits you to to help do the first ad takeover of Yahoo's homepage. Before that, there had never been advertising on the homepage. Uh, there was a small banner mm. um, that was used for promotions. Uh, and the thought was that if an advertising was going to show up on the top page of Yahoo, that um, we had to give extra value to users. So if someone wanted to appear there, they had to do a promotion, like a giveaway or some kind of prize um, alongside the, the brand that they um, – uh, you know, wanted to show on the, uh, on the Yahoo homepage. Um, but you know, first, before I, I launch into uh, sure, this sure. part of the, 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 uh, the discussion, I want to say like a lot of stuff, yes, we worked on through necessity, mm. but a lot of the ideas are not actually new. They, they were not new back uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them had actually been proposed before that. And so I just wanted to make sure that, that people knew that, and, and I gave proper credit to, that the fact that those a lot of the ideas that we worked on post dot uh, dot bust you know year um, 
were actually thought of and um, and proposed. And unfortunately, given the um, the climate uh, at Yahoo, um, none almost none of them were were implemented. And I think it's very frustrating for the people who uh, who did propose at that time. Um, but I think, like you say, necessity uh, meant that revenue was dropping. We had to do something. We might get bought by Microsoft. We don't want to do that. Um, how are we going to remain independent? Um, I think that also kind of bubbled up these ideas again, um, so that and maybe created a time when they could actually flourish versus uh, not before. Right? right. It's almost like the 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 necessity sort of frees you up to be more creative um, and and do things like ad takeovers where as opposed to just a banner that maybe is tied to a specific keyword, it's like the, coming back to this idea of, of the first takeover of the homepage, um, you know, you say in the book, like the value is, is like you said, Yahoo's still a huge web property. So I think it's Ford that's the first uh, client that you work with for this. If Ford puts an ad on Yahoo's homepage, they can reach like 40% of the internet or something. So tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of people. It's like a Super Bowl ad, but but you have that, you have that incredibly valuable real estate that you can offer to, to advertisers every single day. That's right. In fact, we, we did call it the Super Bowl of the internet, where you know, if you advertise in the Super Bowl, you basically reach like a tremendous amount of people in, in those number of hours, right? And same thing for Yahoo. And um, the, yeah, the reach is tremendous. I, I can't even remember how many tens of millions of people that you would reach um, by being on there all day. But yeah, it was like the best way to reach as many people as possible on the internet in one fell swoop. <laughs> Definitely so. Yeah. The um, about being creative and things like that. Um, this is sort of you're now reaching out and and working with. Were you working with the the advertisers directly beforehand, or is this the era where? you're starting to sort of be more hand in glove with someone like Ford or, or Procter and Gamble, or whoever, or, or you talk a lot about the movie studios and, and promoting movies. Is that also part of this um, freeing up of creativity to allow you to do things that maybe Yahoo hadn't done before? Yeah, I think there was a, a pretty steep learning curve during that time because I didn't really know, <clears throat> you know, what it would take to get the advertising on board. What, what was the real problem? Um, why aren't they buying? It's like, what, what are the issues? And I spent a lot of time going out to New York and visiting all the sales offices around the country, just going out with the salespeople and, and visiting the agencies and asking them like, and hearing firsthand, like, what do you guys want? What, what do you need? Like, why, why is this a problem? Like, why don't, don't you buy ads? And it's, it was a multifactorial problem. It ranged from, and a lot of it's covered in the book, right? It's like we, we had to work on ad standards, right? It was too hard to create ads. We needed bigger ad spaces so they could showcase their creativity. We needed to show them what they could do with it because they were still stuck with, well, let's just take the um, magazine graphic that we use for the ad and size it down to the internet. And it sometimes works and more often than not, it didn't work. Um, and how do you capture people's attention and, 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 and set up a, even a way where people would compete against each other so that they would uh, actually do more and more creative and cool stuff uh, for people and then on our side, we had to keep innovating too. We had to provide a platform on which they could do that. So you can see all the different ad formats, the, the page uh, uh, curl, right, that we had and uh, the back page ad that we, that we did. Um, 
I mean, that was a unique experience. And people mm-hmm. loved being in there because it was such a cool thing that, to be there and, and do that. Um, so it was very much a ton of different things coming together. I, we had to talk, we, you know, I'm, we could talk more detail about each one of these things. But, you know, the team inside, they had to change their sensibilities uh-huh. and, um, and how they were thinking about advertising and relaxing, you know, their, their stance on it. Um, and, and, you know, doing lots of tests, uh, um, things like in sports, right? Showing, being a little even more aggressive than normal uh, and seeing what happens because we really didn't know actually what happened. We just kind of thought we knew what happened. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it is, it's a lot of different things. Uh, happy to jump into any one of those. Um, well, I, yeah. you know, it, it, one thing that it occurs to me is that you're also, the advantage that you have in 2001, 2002 is that it is broadband is starting to get more it's it's starting to penetrate further so you're able to do things like rich ads you're able to do ads that have animation that can take over the page and then slide back up and things like that so it's also your after the bubble burst you're able to do things technically that you couldn't do before yeah flash was starting to get out there um we got better at uh detecting what uh browser they were coming in at and then serving them the content appropriate for the technology they had on their computer uh, or lack there, <coughs> thereof. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, so we just wanted to make sure that people would get something. Uh, and if their technology could support it, then they would get the full experience. Um, so, yeah, we, we got better at all that kind of stuff. You, you And you, you mentioned one of the things was, um, you know, standardizing ad specs and things like that. Um, like you work with other uh, web companies and, and advertising agencies and things like this. And it seems like an obvious thing now, but just standardizing the fact that I think in the book you say at some point, you know, Yahoo, Yahoo itself had like 200 different ad types. So getting it down to, you know, this is the standard, you know, uh, skyscraper size. This is what a rich ad can do versus a static ad and that sort of thing. Like, it, it, it's kind of amazing to me that you're nearly a decade into um, into digital advertising before people finally get their act together and, and, and start to start to make it scientific almost. Yeah, the standardization thing was something um, I wish we would gotten an earlier hand on handle on because and I think uh, us designers were at fault as well because we didn't know any better when uh a, a producer would come to us, a producer's uh, probably today, they would call them product manager, um, would come to us saying, oh, I need to build a website. We need some ads on here. And here's a, what we worked out with sales, that there would be these buttons and these rectangles here and there. Can you just draw some? And we get into Photoshop and do it and create an arbitrary rectangle and, and say, oh, we, that measures this by this. And, and that would be the spec. And if you don't have standards, then the way people draw rectangles is different <laughs> for every single website. And so that, you know, that's how you blossom to 200, I think it was 300 ads that, that were out there at the time. Um, and yeah, we just finally, once we put a system in to control that, then things got a lot better because we didn't really know that um, the effect of that uh, on the people who had to produce the ads out there. Um, and, because not only was it Yahoo that was creating the problem, it was all the other internet portals that were out there too they were creating their own rectangles on their websites as well. And so um, if you can imagine a, someone trying to coordinate several tens of 
different ad sizes all varying by one or two, five pixels each way, mm -hmm. and then directing them to the right place, whether it's um, MSN or Yahoo or AOL or whatever, it's, it's a huge management task. Um, but once we got a handle on that, then things got a lot, lot easier and the money, um, and the money followed with that. Yeah. Well, another thing that really comes through in the book is how much, um, you guys at Yahoo specifically, uh, were trying to balance this idea of, okay, we can do more for the advertiser. We can create a bigger, you know, uh, canvas for them. We can, we can add, um, interesting elements and things like that. But then at the same time, you seem to always be hyper-focused on the user experience and, and not overwhelming people. Um, and it, it did that, I guess that grew out of what Yahoo was, was always about from the very beginning, from, from when you first got there, right? Like they, uh, Jerry and David always were thinking of the user experience first, right? Yeah, that's always the, that was always the mantra that users came first. And, um, and arguably, maybe we swung way too much to, to that side um, through the first uh, dot-com boom years. And, um, uh, and then, you know, it took the dot-com bust to, to change our thinking, <laughs> that we could not hold such a hard stance on advertising mm -hmm. and that uh, we, had to do, we, had to be, we had to relax. We had to work with uh, these folks who are paying our bills. Right? We had to do it. You just had to do it. Well, you you talked a little bit about um, earlier about user feedback, and it's always the people that are that are most annoyed that you hear from. But uh, like you also experiment, or, or at least for the first time at Yahoo, some of the the user feedback around ads and getting data in terms of what users are willing to tolerate and and what pushes them too far and things like that. Yeah, there there is. Uh, two guys that worked on this, uh, Paul Kim and John Boyd, um, very simple thing. Uh, and, and here's the problem. So, uh, oftentimes we get feedback that, Oh, I saw this ad and it sucked and it blew across my screen or did this or flashed at me. And then we try to figure out who that was and we couldn't. <laughs> and, uh, because we don't know at exactly which moment that, uh, that the person's on, on the webpage, what ad was on that page at that time, right? Serves are, ads are served uh, randomly, right? As you hit reload on a, on a page, it keeps refreshing that ad in an attempt to, to give you yet another uh, different ad uh, um, once you revisit that page. And so it was very frustrating that we'd get this feedback on, oh, this thing, that thing, that thing happened, and we couldn't figure out who it was uh, or what was causing it. In fact, there was also um, adware. Um, so... Uh, they might have downloaded by accident um, some um, um, uh, you know, uh, very bad software onto their, their browser that got installed. And all of a sudden, there could be ads overlaid on top of our ads. Mm -hmm. And so it might not even be on our system at, at, at all. And so, uh, so what we did then was uh, Paul and John put this uh, feedback link at the bottom of every single page on Yahoo. And using some statistical knowledge, we actually figured out how to – determine what that ad was uh in our system if, if it was an ad in our system and um and that helped our, our ad schedulers track down like who the culprit was that they gave an ad that maybe was a little bit too aggressive or maybe even got past our uh, approval system uh, and got scheduled um, by accident and so um and then then one once we could associate the feedback to an ad or advertiser then we could pass that information back and often sales people would take that information back to them and say look Look, I think you know your your ads are a little bit too 
negative or aggressive or whatever, would you mind doing something for it? Because here's our stats on ad feedback. <laughs> They're saying that people hate your ads <laughs> and it's above the normal noise because uh, there's always this kind of baseline level of negativity. And that's the important thing about this stuff is there's always going to be people complain no matter what. And you, but you got to figure out what that baseline of negativity is. And once someone spikes above it, then you have a, a problem. Well, you know, again, this would seem obvious only in retrospect, but I mean, you, you write in the book about things like simple, intelligent ad rotation so that I'm not bombarded by the same ad five times in a row, <laughs> like setting up systems mm -hmm. so that you see it once and then maybe you wait a while before you show it to the person again. That that helps the user not be annoyed. And it also helps the advertiser because it sort of has that sort of mind penetration thing where yeah, and I think that that's an interesting point you make there because I think advertisers would much rather hammer you with the same message or or their their continuing message over and over and over again. Mm, right. <laughs> um, but I think users tire of that, uh, especially the ones that are not interested. Um, or if you do it in a poor way, like maybe it's the same ad every single time, you just keep seeing it over and over again. Um, some people got more creative where the message would continue right across the next page. It would be a continuation of the story of the message, right? So there, there were things that people did that were uh, better, um, but um, uh, yeah, most people just did not want to see the same ad over and over again, especially if they were not interested in it. The um, the thing that uh, again, I don't want to give away too many of your great stories in the book, but the thing that struck me just based on other people that I've spoken to, like when I did the the twentieth anniversary, the banner ads, a couple. Uh, interviews with like Joe McCambly, Craig Canerick, and, and when they talked about what they uh, regretted about uh, being pioneers in that first digital advertising was that it hadn't followed through, a lot of people hadn't followed through on the interactive promise of the web, um, and it seems like around, you know, 2002 to 2004, you guys at Yahoo were really sort of the pioneers in sort of bringing that to fruition for the first time instead of just being a dumb banner that that pops in your face and annoys you 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 guys are getting creative with with the interactivity that that the web was supposed to be all about anyway where where the the ads are uh intelligent and maybe even funny or entertaining and so it's sort of it's sort of like that 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 maturation of advertising that I guess in the dot-com times um, it was just the money was too easy and too good to, to, to sort of evolve that thing till you guys do it uh, after the bubble burst. Yeah. And I think the technology wasn't quite there yet either for, to do it really well um, before the dot-com bust anyway. But, um, but once we got going, the technology kind of caught up and people weren't crashing browsers because they saw an ad <laughs> on the page then uh, then things could become more interesting. They could Advertisers could bring the experience onto the page. People didn't have to leave. And people still, I think, today are stuck on, oh, I got to have this many visits to my website, you know, as their, their metric for success in their jobs or whatever, especially marketers. And I go, you know, I'm not sure it's about that anymore, right? It's, sometimes it's about just seeing the ad. Sometimes it's about it, uh, people uh, interacting with the ad. Uh, sometimes it's much more downstreams. Like maybe I saw the ad and then I walked to a, a local store and I bought something. Uh, how do you track that? Right. That's, that's pretty tough. But, um, but yeah, we're getting a lot more sophisticated and, and bringing the, the promise of, of what the internet can do to, especially for advertisers. Um, it's, there's some really cool stuff happening right now. Some of it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit scary and intrusive. When you think about it, especially like if I search on Google and, 
with something and then all of a sudden I go to another web page and there's an ad for that thing for the next <laughs> month. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For the next month or yeah, it's, it, it can be a little bit unnerving, but you know, you kind of get used to that too. Uh, and sometimes it, it's worthwhile, you know, sometimes it's valuable to the user as well. Well, okay. So uh, that just in a broad way, uh, you kind of got into it there, but, but what do you think of the, the state of advertising now, you know, we're obviously a, a decade into the, the mobile era you have, you know, things like retargeting, like you're talking about, but also, you know, um, native ads and things like that. So, um, what do you think is is uh, has advertising matured in a way that you think it's it's healthy today, or are are some people starting to starting to do some of the bad old behavior from the dot com pop up days? What do you think of advertising right now? I don't think anybody's doing anything bad from an experience point of view. At least I haven't seen it. Um, I don't see many ads that are, uh, like if you go to the back of the book, I have an appendix of these ads that are, are very of questionable quality, I call mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and, and I don't see much of that. Uh, maybe occasionally, but not, not much. Um, so I think people are doing a good job of policing the content and making sure that it is a, of a certain standard and quality. Um, and uh, um, I think what advertisers need to contend with now is how easy it is for people to ignore them. Right? People are used to seeing where those rectangles are and, and they just kind of flow right by them from a, their eyes, right? They're going right past it and, and looking down and reading stuff. Um, I think that's where people need to figure out is how can I recapture their attention when they are, they, they've conditioned themselves not to be pay attention. Um, I think that's, that's a huge challenge. Um, I think, there's definitely um, opportunities in mobile advertising, which everybody's got a device now. But I talk about this, I think, in the book a little bit. But you know, when we first started, um, there were 640 pixels by 480 pixel screens out there, and that was huge, right? And the 468 by 60 uh, banner that we used to have on there was a large um, area on that that particular screen, that resolution. But now we, you know, I'm sitting here looking at my my Mac here. It's I don't what is it, 1440 by 900 pixels or something like that, or even more than that with the, their new screens. And if you put a 460 by 60 pixel um, ad on there, it's so tiny. In fact, all the ads that we created uh, for the standards, the the rectangles and everything, the large rectangle doesn't look so large anymore. <laughs> everything just seems to get smaller and smaller as the resolutions of the of the pages get larger and larger. Um, so and, and easier to skip around. So I think, you know, what do you, advertisers need to do now? I, um, it's an interesting question. Um, not sure it's more interruptiveness. Um, they, I think those still have the same issues as before. But um, but I think the world is still open in terms of creativity. Right? What do you put in the ads? How you what kind of message you're sending to people? Um, there's always something unique you can do there. And um, I think um, advertisers should always be challenging themselves to to do more and more creative stuff. Um, and then I should also say that having worked on the, um, the portal side of things, I think portals should also challenge themselves to continually innovate too. Um, I always used to talk about this with the front page team that you got to keep coming up with the formats. I don't care how you do it. You just got to keep doing it because as soon as the, the first one goes out, they're always excited. They pay the most money for it. And then it quickly becomes commodity because everybody else is, second or third and nobody is excited about doing the second or third or fourth execution of that. And then the, 
the price that you can charge for that ad goes down too. So you got to keep coming up with new stuff, <laughs> um, uh, new templates for people to drop their creativity into. Um, so I think portals can also do a lot more as well. Well, as we said at the beginning, um, it, it, the book takeover, um, this is the, your first book. Um, what, what was that like? Um, wh- what was the story that you, you felt was, was important, um, for people to, to hear about, uh, 20, 15, 10 years on from, from the events in this book? Yeah. So when I started the book, uh, I really wanted to write a book about Yahoo since I felt like I was one of the early guys there, but I didn't really want to do a general history of Yahoo. I think some people tried to tackle it and, and maybe I kind of felt that one of the founders, uh, Jerry or Dave should, should do that. Um, but I, you know, I, I felt like I had something to say about it. So that, that's how I came up with this thread of, um, let's do a little Yahoo history, but let's talk about the advertising piece, which I had a, a, a large, um, role in, uh, especially towards my later years at Yahoo. Um, <clears throat> so then, you know, I sat down with, uh, my friend, Stephanie Zong, um, for many, many weeks and she just sat there and typed on a computer <laughs> while I just regurgitated everything I can remember before I forgot about it. Um, and then once that got into the computer, then I reorganized it and, um, and, uh, into something that was readable. Uh, I reached out to a bunch of friends, uh, old, uh ex Yahoo friends, uh, kind of try to tighten up the story in between there. And then I kind of let it sat uh, for, for many years. <laughs> um, I think the impetus for me to, to bring it back up was uh, all of a sudden they started appearing these startups uh, and consultants that could help you write a book. Uh, there's like bookinabox.com and, and I ended up going with another consultant, um, Robert Hokeman Jr., who's awesome, uh, who shepherded me along the way. And basically these people can help you write these books. So I said, okay, I dusted off my, my file and gave it to him mm-hmm. and uh, he cleaned it up like a real editor should have cleaned up. <laughs> and uh, and then I l- had to self-teach myself how to self-publish and I learned a lot about that process. And um, yeah, and now it just kind of coincided with the timing of Yahoo sale to Verizon. So it's kind of an interesting uh, time that maybe I tried to hit it a little bit closer, but I missed it by a couple months, but <laughs> um, uh, publishing the book. But uh yeah, I thought it was just a good time where, you know, we could, those of us who were there could reminisce and kind of be still excited and, and, um, uh, and think about all the great things we did there. Um, so this is just one aspect uh, of Yahoo's history that um, people can be really proud of. As, as someone that was there almost at the very beginning, um, what, what, are the, what are the feelings about, about Yahoo no longer being an a, a independent entity anymore? Is it, I, I guess it's bittersweet, or what, what do you think about uh, uh, Yahoo's life cycle, as it were? At one level, I, it's very hard for me to, to have an attachment because I kind of – I have a good – I've always practiced letting go of things very easily. So when I left uh, back in 2004, I kind of let go way back then uh, about all my stuff about Yahoo or, and, and my attachment to it. Um, but as maybe an outsider now kind of looking in and, and, uh, in the evolution of a company like Yahoo, um, I just wonder if like, what could have Yahoo done right to, to stay alive? Mm. I think that question is very tough in today's world. I, I'm not sure any company, uh, is not under fire. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, you know, I used to think IBM, for example, would die. 
right? It, my, both my parents work for IBM on Poughkeepsie, New York. Mm. And uh, I thought at one point, you know, with the um, advent of uh, personal computers and all that kind of thing, that all their mainframe business would, would die and, and there goes the company, poof. Uh, and it seemed like that for a while, but they reinvented themselves. Right? And, and it turned out that mainframes didn't die. <laughs> and uh, they these microcomputers that people were so hot on the decks and all that kind of thing. Uh, Digital Equipment Corporation is, is what DEX stands for. Um, <laughs> might see that in a museum somewhere these days. But um, I mean, those are nowhere anymore, right? Workstations are not anymore, right? We're talking about people who still need mainframes, like the big banks and other people who need lots of things processed very quickly. Um, and uh, And yeah, we have things that our desk are on in our hand, right? Our phone is more powerful than any PC we have. But, you know, IBM reinvented itself, right? It's doing a lot more different things. So I think it's possible. But, you know, people ask me, it's like, what should, what should Yahoo have done? It's like, I don't have a clue, right? It's like, if you think about just from a product standpoint, yeah, it's like, well, just do everything, what everybody else does. Mm. But then you get into the social political things that are within the company that are self-defeating, right? <laughs> so do they have the people in there? Do they have the will, right? The will often has to come from the top down, right? Mm -hmm. like, and that person has to really understand that change is painful. Sometimes you're going to have to kill something that is making millions and millions of dollars of revenue a year. And that was one of the toughest things, I think, throughout even Yahoo history, which isn't talked about in the book, which is, you know, it's hard for upper management to look at it something and say, it's the right thing to kill it. Yes, it's making millions of dollars a year, but we're just going to have to give that up for now because we have faith that something else would, will take up the slack and more. Right? Um, but it, it was very tough for Yahoo to do that. Very tough. Um, but yeah, I, I could not tell you what any company should be doing. It, it's just, it's such a hard problem. Well, good to dream about good. You know. yeah, right. Um, well, David, I, um, we, we talked uh, before we started recording off air um, and I said that uh, you know there's there's so few books on on Yahoo overall, um, and so I this is a, a book that I have been hoping that someone would come out with um, uh, sooner than now. But it you've done it and it's fantastic. It's not only there's um, you know I've said on this show before that I think that Yahoo was the first great web company. Not only do you get um, some great stories about about those early days, but um, as we said, it's a lot of the um, the evolution of advertising, which is the main business model of the web. And and actually, he mentions the the appendix, um, which is quite big. And not only can you see some of the um, you know the early ads, the early Yahoo homepages, but there's great for for a, a history nerd like me, there's great facts and figures on here, like you know rate cards, demographics info <laughs> in terms of Yahoo users back in the day. So um, I want to say again, the book is called Takeover, the inside story of the Yahoo ad revolution. And I'm assuming uh, people can get this on Amazon and all the, the usual places. Yep. Uh, look for it on Amazon uh, and uh, get the Kindle version, the paperback. Um, I'm working on the hardcover. Mm -hmm. uh, that should hopefully will be out uh, very soon. Um, you'll want to wait for the hardcover if you like physical books because the, uh, the appendices are all in color. Mm -hmm. um, so you see things in full color, um, but uh, yeah, it'll it'll be out. Uh, well, let's see. We're recording this the day before it launches, so <laughs> uh, it will be uh, 
live on September 1st, which is tomorrow, at least in, at the time of this recording. Right. Well, so when, look for it on Amazon. When you're listening to this now, that means you can go buy it immediately. <laughs> so um, That's right. That's right. And frankly, anyone that's, that's a listener of this podcast um, is definitely someone that would be interested in this book. Um, David, thanks for, thanks for doing the book. Thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing all that with us. And, um, thanks for, um, making sure that the, the Yahoo story is going to, going to be kept alive. Thanks for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was, it was a fun hour that we had here, uh, remembering all the good times back then. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at Brian MCC. Thanks for listening.